thank you all for coming to worship the Lord with us. Uh, just so you don't have to wonder about this and be confused, let me just apologize for my uh, miscommunication with Reese. This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 8, not in Luke chapter 9. So you can stop thinking about that now and not have to wonder, was that a mistake? Yes, my mistake. I apologize. <clears throat> Those, <clears throat> those who have experienced deep suffering often say that one of the hardest things about it is feeling so alone. For example, a young couple that I know, some dear friends, gave birth to a stillborn child a little over a year ago. And they have told me that they face incredible anxiety in groups of people because it's inevitable that someone that they just meet will ask them an innocent question. Oh, you're a young couple. Do you have any children? And they're not sure whether to say yes or no. Do they say yes, but he passed away? Which makes the questioner feel really embarrassed and it makes the entire conversation really awkward. Or do they just say no to get it over with and get through it, but then that feels terribly disrespectful to the memory of their son? This makes them feel really alone and isolated from flourishing in community. And for any sufferer, this feeling of aloneness can be the sharpest with respect to a person's intimacy with God. One character in the Bible named Job said straight out what most of us often feel when we suffer. In Job 16, he said, I was at ease and God broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. Now, such feelings are real when we suffer. Yet, as we continue our study of Luke's gospel this morning, Luke wants us to know that God's kingdom has dawned in the man Jesus. Jesus has brought about a new state of affairs. And because Jesus is who he said he is, that is, he is the chosen one of God ushering in a new world order. Because that's true, your suffering doesn't have to keep you far from God anymore. Your suffering can come to an end and intimacy with God is possible. And in fact, that's what God is pursuing now with those that he makes his companions. Does that sound too good to be true? Maybe it is. It depends on what you trust in to get you out of your predicament. Those who place their trust in the right object just might find a closeness with God beyond their wildest imaginings. So this morning, we will see uh, on your outline as we look at the end of Luke chapter 8, We'll see the isolation of misery, and then we'll see the power of faith. Let me pray once again before we dive in. 
Father in heaven, please help us to see you even in our miseries when we feel isolated from others and isolated from you. Help us to turn to you and to grasp by faith who Jesus is and what he has come to do to turn all of these things inside out. Help us to trust, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, with the isolation of misery, our first point. Luke wants you to be certain in in this book that he wrote, he wants you to be certain of the things you've heard about Jesus. He said that all the way at the beginning of the book. Now, to develop this certainty, there is a time when we must be honest about the pain and misery of life in this fallen world. Where we are in Luke, Jesus just exercised a legion of demons out of a man in non-Jewish territory. And then the local townspeople asked Jesus to leave. So he crossed the lake with his disciples back into Jewish regions. And we pick up the text in verse 40 of chapter 8. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Let me pause there to reflect on the isolation of misery. Because the first thing that Luke wants us to see in this passage is that our misery causes terrible isolation. Luke shows us this isolation by connecting two stories together into a marvelous drama. We have the story of a synagogue ruler's dying daughter and the story of a chronically bleeding woman that Luke weaves together. Now take note of their misery and of the resulting isolation that the misery causes. Jairus, this ruler of of the synagogue, the local gathering of Jews, he comes to Jesus and he's at the end of his rope. Verse 42, it's not because his daughter is sick, but because she is dying. Now, he could deal with sickness when it was just sickness. People deal with that all the time. But this guy, who has the power to manage the affairs of the local synagogue, he has no power to restore his daughter to full health and flourishing. Now, we've seen in Luke up to this point that the Jewish leaders have been quite skeptical of Jesus and of his claims. Just in chapter 6, they began plotting to harm Jesus. But here we have Jairus, one of these religious leaders, who is out of time to sort through his skepticism. He needs to do something right now. And with his daughter's life on the line, he is willing to place his chips on Jesus. And this would automatically put him on the naughty list with his peers. 
Perhaps his daughter's illness already has him feeling isolated. From other parts of the New Testament, we know that the Jewish leaders might be questioning this man's faithfulness to God because of his daughter's illness. If he were truly a faithful Jew, his family would be thriving and blessed and healthy. So he already probably feels some isolation, but he's willing to risk even further isolation by coming to Jesus, verse 1, falling at his feet and begging him to come to his house. And then we learn about this woman in verse 43. She has been, she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years she also comes to jesus at the end of her rope she has been suffering this discharge of blood for 12 years and every commentator i've ever read would agrees that she doesn't simply have a problem with hemophilia this isn't a wound that won't clot no her discharge of blood has to do with her monthly cycle except for her It hasn't been a monthly cycle for the last 12 years. It's been a daily cycle. Now, as painful and humiliating as that might be for her on a physiological level, we must also understand the cultural context, which adds a tremendous spiritual and social stigma to her suffering. Her bleeding renders her ritually unclean, which in Jewish culture, that doesn't mean that she's dirty or she's unhealthy. It means that she is disqualified to enter God's sacred space in the temple. Listen to what the law of Moses has to say regarding her from Leviticus chapter 15. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. What this means is that for 12 straight years, this woman could not enter the temple courts. She could not celebrate the Passover or any religious festival. She could not worship God with the rest of the people. She could not even offer a sacrifice to deal with her sin or her suffering. And in fact, anyone who touches her or who touches something that she sat on will likewise be unclean for the rest of that day and could not enter the temple. 
Now, there would be tremendous social pressure for her to announce her condition to any crowd of people. She must warn people to keep their hands off if they would like to draw close to God today. And after 12 years of this, she almost certainly would have started seeing herself as being a source of contamination. Without help, without value, without hope of it ever changing. We cannot overstate the isolation that she has experienced in her misery. So we have here in this passage two female characters experiencing terrible suffering and their suffering splashes abundantly on their family and on the members of their community. They are affecting others by it. Can you relate to either of these situations? Maybe your situation hasn't been quite as extreme as one of these, being near death or having a 12-year condition. Or maybe your situation is just as extreme as this. Some members of our church have had chronic health conditions that never go away. And the pain and the suffering is always there. Others of you have had mental health struggles. And the pain and the suffering are always there. Some of you have been the primary caretakers of children with special needs. And even beyond children with special needs, children with special needs tend to grow into young adults with special needs who tend to grow into adults with special needs. Some of you may never see some of your children live an independent life from their parents, getting married, giving you grandchildren, being able to care for you in your old age. And the pain and the suffering never goes away, and the isolation is always present. Some of you may have been abused or constantly beat down when you were children and you're still suffering the effects of it where it's difficult for you to get close to people or to trust authority figures in your life. Anytime somebody offers a suggestion for improvement, maybe you struggle to globalize it And you think everything is terrible and you spiral down into despair over ever being able to measure up. Some of you have made very painful and difficult choices to honor the Lord. And it has cost you dearly. It has cost you your job or the respect of your family or your academic aspirations. Maybe some of you wrestle with self-disgust over aspects of your personality or your body where you can't stand your weight or your hair or your body type or your freckles or your susceptibility to illness or your introversion or your extroversion or your speech impediment or your disability. Perhaps you have felt alone and isolated and far from God on account of any of these things. Some of you might still be regretting a foolish choice you made years ago. And you wonder if God is still punishing you for it. 
You wonder whether you've already missed out on God's plan A for your life and somehow you've fallen to plan B, C, D, or E. And you've missed the best. And you feel isolated because of it. Whatever you faced, you may have experienced how isolating your misery can be. Maybe you fear that nobody will ever understand. You question whether anybody even cares. Sometimes you wonder whether God cares. You feel like you'll never be normal. You constantly wonder how much you are missing out on in life. And especially, you might know in your doctrine that God cares and he controls it all. But functionally, day by day, you wonder where he's gone off to and you wonder when he will show up in your life. Or you fear whether, if he does finally show up, whether he'll be so disappointed with you as to turn away from you just like everybody else seems to do. On behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, I declare to you today, I want you to know that your misery is real. Your sense of isolation is normal. You are not a terrible Christian if you struggle with these things. It's okay to acknowledge when your suffering and your misery make you feel far from God. I know it's risky to open up about what's really going on in your life. And it can be painful to relive things that were painful enough to go through the first time. But again, brothers and sisters, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, I proclaim to you that Jesus came to deal with all your misery and your suffering. His salvation is not only a rescue from sin. It is that. It's not less than that. But it's not only that. He also rescues us from the misery that entered the world because of humanity's first choice to sin against God. And Luke wants you and me to be certain of this, that Jesus came to undo this. That rescue from these things can be yours by faith. That is, if you will simply trust the right person. So having seen the isolation caused by misery, let's talk about the power of faith. This is the second thing Luke wants us to see here. And by faith, we're not talking about a sense of vague, sentimental, spiritual feelings. By, by faith, Luke means trust in God's appointed hero. A life or death trust in the hero that God appointed. And Luke highlights the power of such faith in three steps. First, he shows us that faith saves. Let me read verses 44 through 48. He's talking about this woman who's had the discharge of blood for 12 years. She came up behind him, behind Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. 
But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman who has lived for 12 years in isolation from God and isolation from everyone else, she now risks everything by seeking Jesus out in a crowd. She thinks she can do it quietly. I'll sneak in, touch him, I'll sneak out, and nobody even has to know they've been contaminated by me. But Jesus won't allow that. He must draw attention to it. Verses 45 and 46 give us a comical scene where Jesus asks who touched him in the midst of a pressing crowd. Verse 47, she knows she can't hide, so she comes forward in the, from the crowd to tell her whole story. Luke tells us that she told him, she told them everything. Why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Imagine the shame and the fear she must have felt to be called out like that in front of everybody. Imagine the angry faces and the the trolling, critical remarks of the people in the crowd believing her to have treated them selfishly and cavalierly to make them unclean like this. Imagine the tension and the hostility of the situation which is about to explode. And then, hear Jesus' kind words which cut through the tension and prick the bubble of hostility with masterful poise. Verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And to get the full impact of this statement from Jesus, you have to realize that this is exactly the same thing that Jesus said to another woman back in chapter 7. There was another woman who was at the end of her rope, who was known as a sinner of the city. She had been a prostitute. She found Jesus having dinner in the home of a Jewish leader, and she came in, and she, she sat, she bowed at Jesus' feet and wept onto his feet, and then dried her tears with his, yeah, her tears on his feet with her hair. And then Jesus declared to her that her sins were forgiven. And then Jesus concluded in verse 50 of chapter 7, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's the same thing Jesus says in chapter 8 to the bleeding woman with the exception that he calls her daughter at the beginning of the sentence. In Greek, the two sentences are identical. Your faith has saved you. 
Now the translators changed the translation in chapter 8 from saved you to made you well because we're talking about a physical healing and not sins being forgiven. But the Greek word is the same, saved. And this is one of Luke's main themes in the whole book is that of being saved. This is about the salvation that Jesus has brought. And that salvation has to do with the forgiveness of sins, chapter 7. It also has to do with so much more, chapter 8. The alleviation of suffering and misery. You see, the kingdom of God is a kingdom where all of the suffering and pain and isolation of life on earth will eventually be reversed. And life and peace will be the order of the day. And Jesus gives a sign of that future and final reversal by enabling some of it to invade the present. This woman's bleeding in chapter 8 dries right up and her misery unravels and her isolation is at an end. And Jesus wants the entire crowd to know how this works. And so he calls this woman out and has her tell her story. It works because of faith. Your faith has saved you. It works because she trusted in the right person. Not in the end, all the doctors on whom she spent all her living. Not in the end, the society in which she hoped to live. She didn't put her trust in the end in the law of Moses, which had the power to diagnose her and to condemn her, but it had no power to unravel the pain and give her life and peace. Only Jesus can make the future kingdom of God break into the present and invade our lives. And because she trusted Jesus to make it possible, it became possible. Faith saves. How does this apply to us? Brothers and sisters, though it is okay and acceptable to acknowledge When your suffering and your misery make you feel far from God, please don't trust your feelings in the end. Trust Jesus instead. He is the one who can make it right. He is the one who will make everything right in the end. He is the one building his kingdom And leading you to glory, life, and peace. So faith in the right person will bring salvation. Luke wants to show us another step in the journey of faith as well. Not only does faith save, but also faith extinguishes fear. The woman with the discharge of blood, her story may be over as of verse 48, but the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and his daughter is really just getting good. Look at verses 49 and 50. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the woman about her faith, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only Believe, and she will be well. 
Did you remember that Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house to heal his dying daughter? And so when this bleeding woman came up to Jesus in the crowd, not only did she threaten to spiritually contaminate everyone in the crowd, she also compromised the window of time available to Jesus to show up before Jairus' daughter died. Remember, the girl wasn't just sick. She was dying. Well, now we learn that that window for healing her has closed. Because of the delay in speaking with the woman and hearing her story, Jairus' daughter has died, verse 49. This is no obstacle for Jesus, however. His words to the woman are still ringing in the air. Luke tells us while he was still speaking. So these words, daughter, your faith has saved you. Those words are ringing in the air. And Jesus turns to Jairus. And implores him to learn from the faith of the woman before him. Verse 50, he says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear. Do not fear what? Don't fear the death of your daughter. Don't fear the loss of time here. Don't fear the regret of not having come to me sooner. Don't fear the ostracism of your synagogue buddies. Do you see what this woman's belief did for her? It saved her. It can do the same for you. Don't fear, only believe. And she will be well. Again, in the Greek, Luke uses the same word for salvation. Only believe and she will be saved. What is about to happen fits right in with Jesus' purposes in bringing the salvation of the kingdom of God. You can be certain of this. How does this apply? Understand that Jesus cares not only about your past, but also your present and your future. Please understand that Jesus cares not only about your past, but also about your present and your future. Let me explain what I mean. It's one thing for us to believe what God has done in the past. We can say, I believe, I have faith. He did all that back then. But it's quite another thing to believe what he will do in the future. Do you believe? Will you believe? Or will you fear? Will you be afraid of what's happening in your life right now, or afraid of what's to come in the future. For example, you might believe in the past that Jesus, he said he was God, he lived a perfect life, he died a perfect death. You may believe that Jesus died in your place so that your sin could be forgiven. Maybe you believe all of that. But do you also believe that God cares about what happens to you tomorrow? or next week, or next year. That what Jesus did back then wasn't just for your past, it also is for all the stuff that hasn't happened yet. Do you believe that you can be saved not only from your sin, but also from your misery and the isolation it causes? Do you believe that Jesus will make all things new 
that Jesus will bring all suffering to an end and that Jesus will establish everlasting righteousness and peace and life and joy in the new heaven and new earth. That's what faith does. It extinguishes fear as we look to the present and the future. And we take what we know from the past and we say, I can trust him tomorrow as well. So faith saves and faith extinguishes fear. But Luke has one last step for us on this journey. Jesus amazes. Verses 51 to 56. And when Jesus came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Friends, Luke wants us to see that Jesus and only Jesus truly amazes. He amazes the gathered loved ones who think he's joking about the girl only being asleep. He amazes the girl's parents by holding out to them an impossible hope for something unbelievable. And he amazes his three closest disciples... Peter, James, and John. Because they get to witness firsthand the future kingdom of God busting into their present lives. We need to understand what Jesus is doing here. You might remember from chapter 7 that Jesus could simply speak the word and make everything better. He healed a servant of a soldier, of a centurion from a distance. He didn't even have to be physically present. But here he is, physically present. And I think he does it on purpose. Because you'll remember that the the bleeding woman, the woman who had that discharge of blood, she threatened everyone's ritual purity by pushing her way through the crowd. But those people didn't have any say in it. And the way the story is told, it's as though Jesus didn't have any say in it. She just snuck up without telling anyone. But Jesus now, in this With this girl, he self-consciously threatens the ritual purity of himself and his disciples and the girl's parents. He does this willingly and actively and with full intention. Let me explain what I mean. Look at Numbers chapter 19. Again, from the law of Moses. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Jesus knows this full well. He knows his scripture. And he enters the house with the dead girl in it anyway. He penetrates the ultimate isolation. The isolation that this girl now faces in death. The isolation that's forced upon anyone who wishes to grieve her death. You can go in there and grieve or you can, you can go to comfort, come alongside the family in their time of need, but then you can't come near to God for seven days. But when Jesus enters into that, 
He does not suffer isolation. He is not made unclean. He does not become unworthy of entering God's presence. Not even a dead body can contaminate Jesus with death. Jesus is himself contagious. And he ends up contaminating everything and everyone he touches with life. Verse 55 says, her spirit returned after he touched her hand. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. Are you amazed yet? Along with this girl's parents. Who is this who causes everything he touches to come to life? Who is this who never becomes unclean himself? Who never faces the isolation? But he makes everyone around him clean and close to God. He penetrates our misery and he brings us in close to God. He shows us himself the very glory of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator and the redeemer of heaven and earth. How does this apply for us, friends? Whether you already trust Jesus or not, if you're still examining Jesus, please understand that your suffering and your shame are not the end of the story. Jesus is in the process of unraveling everything. And he is in the process of turning everything back into the glorious and happy place he always intended his world to be. And you can participate in that with him now by setting your hope in him. This doesn't mean everything will be happy and glorious now. But you will start to see his future kingdom breaking in. And you can make for a better future by partnering with him to reverse that curse that came when sin entered the world. So yes, pain and suffering are real. And they bring real isolation. But Jesus came to save us from all of it. He came to make it right. To tell us that God is really king. Fear is not necessary. You don't have to stay far from God. And you can be close to the one who is only good all the time. May this hope inspire us to be more forthright about our misery and our isolation so we can further bear one another's burdens in that as we limp together across the finish line of this life and enter into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to bring salvation. He is our King. Help us only to believe and not to fear. May we trust you. May we trust Jesus. And may we do that together and inspire one another to greater trust that we can be honest and vulnerable with one another about what's really going on in our lives. And we can help to bear one another's burdens. And so see your future kingdom bust into the present. Please show us your glory, Lord, we beg of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen.